near the coast of Alaska last week. The U.S. mobilizing four destroyers and patrol planes in response to guide the ships away from U.S. waters. Wall Street Journal editorial board writing, quote, the naval patrol is best understood as a warning that U.S. territory isn't safe as well as a test of how the U.S. will respond. The world is getting more dangerous and a complacent U.S. political class isn't educating the public about the growing threats. You know, we're on the edge of war and the Biden administration refuses to fill the strategic petroleum reserve, which it drained last year. So I don't know how this gets more dangerous. The Chinese can see it. And I think they're going to try and take advantage of the situation. The number of Chinese illegal migrants crossing the border is surging. Guys, up 115% since October last year. This is coming as a new report reveals Chinese nationals have breached U.S. military sites at least 100 times in recent years. The issue with people probing the defenses of military bases is could simply just be driving up to the gate to see if they get turned around, but there have been instances of, of people posing, or maybe they actually are Chinese tourists, who are just given a side mission and, and have people who are kept back home or are going to be interviewed as soon as they get back home by the Ministry of State Security, who are, are very aggressive, who are blowing past checkpoints, who have penetrated deeper into military bases. Um, and if you just step back and look at all of the things China does, and also its, its method of espionage, which instead of the Soviet Union, and later Russia, which is to focus on a very few high-value penetration agents that can work their way into the CIA or FBI, China just sort of throws everything against the wall and sees what sticks. So this could very well be part of that effort. U.S. lawmakers now are really taking notice of this new Huawei Mate phone, which it, it, it almost like a made in China phone in some ways, and saying that maybe SMIC did violate sanctions there. What, what does this tell us of where we are in, in this tech war now? Yeah, that's a very sensitive uh, issue. Uh, the Biden administration, of course, has imposed these very strict export controls on what kinds of chips, what kinds of chip making equipment can be sent to China. And what we found out through this teardown that we did uh, exclusively is inside the Huawei phone, there's a chip made by SMIC at seven nanometers, which is much more advanced than anybody thought uh, SMIC could actually produce chips, especially after they've been blacklisted by the company. It sounds a little bit strange that a company, SMIC, that's already been blacklisted by the company, by the U.S. government, still needs to follow U.S. rules, but it does. If Smith wants to supply Huawei, and it has American equipment in its factory, then it needs to follow American export rules uh, in selling to Huawei. So, as, as you uh, referenced, an American lawmaker is now calling for an investigation into what SMIC is doing exactly and how much it's helping Huawei if it is making these chips for Huawei. It's a very sensitive issue. It is incredibly rare you, for Kim Jong-un to leave the country, but now we're hearing he's going to take a trip to Russia to talk about a possible arms deal. Put this development into perspective for us. Well, this has been in the works for a while. The Russian defense minister, Shoigu, uh, visited Pyongyang, uh, you know, about, about a month ago to set this deal up. Uh, and look, uh, this is significant in a couple of ways. One, uh, I, I'm not as worried about the equipment. Uh, the, North Korea has been stockpiling and, and using uh, Russian-made equipment for 70 years uh, in, in its military dictatorship, but I'm very worried about the amount of ammunition that they can provide, particularly artillery. Uh, and they can provide thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds 
that will allow Russia to stretch the war out in Ukraine. And if it settles down into a stalemate, if the Ukrainian counteroffensive breaks down and is not effective, uh, this will allow Putin to absolutely continue the war. And then the other thing, Carly, is this is an extension of the unholy alliance uh, of Iran, China, Russia, and uh, North Korea, the new axis of evil. And I'm not seeing anything in terms of a strategy from the Biden administration to drive wedges in between uh, the axis of evil here to disrupt what's going on, this new alliance. You basically just see kind of a shoulder shrug from the White House. Well, President Biden visiting Vietnam yesterday after attending the G20 summit in India. The president saying the U.S. outreach to Vietnam is about providing global stability, not about containing China. Watch this. What this trip is about is less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away, and closer to the United States, Vietnam being closer with the United States. It's not about containing China. It's about having a stable base, a stable base in the Indo-Pacific. Well, everybody, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. My name is Alex from Reportify Media, and welcome to the show, Let's Talk China show. I am joined by my awesome co-host, Cyrus Jansen on the program. Hello, Cyrus. How are you? Hello, Alex and everybody. Thank you for joining us here on YouTube. It's fantastic to be here. Alex, we got a lot to talk about today. Power hour. It is indeed the power hour here. Of course, uh, grab yourself a coffee, put the tea on, stick around. We got lots to cover here. Cyrus, this has been an interesting week here with the G20. Uh, you've been following it quite closely there uh, in the United States. Uh, what are you hearing over in those parts of the water? Well, I, you know, what's interesting, Alex, is that I, I think the big news is that that we've got the United States and the G20 are now coming up with a plan to essentially try to take on China's Belt and Road Initiative. And I think this is something that you'll know very clearly because, you know, I know that you've done a lot of work on the Belt and Road, uh, as, as, as I have as well. We have a lot of videos that we've done. And what's interesting that we're seeing is I, I think a lot of people fail to realize this is that the Belt and Road Initiative is already 10 years old. So, you know, no matter what the United States and Western allies want to do, you know, China has a head start, a massive head start. They've already signed up 149 countries around the world. Uh, the Belt and Road, again, it's already 10 years old. It's already done over $6 trillion worth of trade around the globe. And you're seeing so many tangible benefits from countries around the world that have been completely transformed through the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, this is going through the Middle East, um, also going through Africa. I mean, these are probably the, it, it's really giving a voice to the global South, which as we know, has been heavily neglected by the United States and our Western allies. And this is something that is causing a huge shift in what we're seeing on the greater scale is this shift from a unipolar world where after World War II, the United States has always been the world leader. Everyone has looked to the United States. It, you know, it is everything has gone the United States way. You know, obviously it was very strategic after World War II. The United States came in. They, you know, we had the accords uh, where we worked with European leaders, saying, "Look, we're going to rebuild Europe after the war. Uh, we're going to, you know, make the United States dollar the world currency, the federal, you know, the foreign reserve currency. Uh, we're going to, you know, we did that deal with Saudi Arabia to start exporting exporting oil in U.S. dollars. Everything has gone through the United States for decades. It has it has truly been a unipolar world for a long, long time, but." 
we have seen a massive shift in the last couple of years. And I think for smaller countries around the world, you know, they have a very different approach now. And it is simply one of, of course, I want to trade with the United States, uh, it being the largest economy in the world, uh, who doesn't want to trade with the US, but we also want to have other options. And we certainly want to trade with China as well. And I think that we're just seeing this new multipolar world. And that's really that that's what's happened with the Belt and Road Initiative. And that is what we're seeing is that China obviously has a seat at the table. They have they I mean, you know, you cannot argue that China can build infrastructure better than any country in the world. I mean, if you're wanting to get bridges built and uh, schools and hospitals and um, ports and all of these things that are, are happening, I mean, China's leading the world in this type of innovation. And they are simply doing that all over the world. And it's been, we've seen a lot of tangible results. And I think that's the big difference is that when the United States goes to a continent like Africa, we typically go there to lecture. I mean, we sit down and we tell African people, this is what you need to do. And basically, we waste a lot of our time because our entire focus is on telling African leaders to not work with China. Meanwhile, China obviously they come in with a very different mindset. Chinese Chinese government officials and the Chinese government, they don't care if African countries are working with the United States. Their mindset is a little bit more healthier, in my opinion, where it says, hey, work with the US, but also work with us. Here's what we're going to do. Again, you're seeing those tangible benefits. So kind of going back and, and wrapping this you know, opening comment up, Alex, it's, it's interesting when we hear these plans. Um, you know, for example, do I remember about 18 months ago, uh, wasn't Biden all about the Build Back Better uh, program. You know, this was again something that made this huge news flash. Everybody's all about BBB, Triple B. That we're going to build back better. It's going to take on the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, incredibly, we haven't heard anything in the last 18 months about this. But now the US and the G20 are coming together again. We've got this grand plan, but actions speak louder than words. I would like to see some action, you know, first before I, I become, uh, you know, a believer in this. You know, we, we, we're very good at talking, but, you know, can we walk the, can we walk the talk? <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that insight. Uh, Cyrus, uh, just to update you, the Built Back Better is actually, well, I nickname it the Built Back Bankrupt. It's actually long gone and it's, right. uh, it's pretty much been canceled. It didn't get the go ahead. Uh, it didn't get the support it needed. Uh, so bye bye to that. Now, this does cause the Americans a few issues here. And the number one issue is trade. We look at trade and we think it's just logistical lines like a, a trade line uh, tanker ships leaving the West Coast, going across the ocean and uh, just dropping containers or picking up product, vice versa. The real complexity uh, what's going on with the trade routes today is you're looking at old infrastructure with the United States. Now, people might say, well, what are you talking about? We have the latest, greatest cars on the streets and the roads. We can you know, do that, no problem. And we have you know, good tanker trucks uh, that drive up and down our roads, but not really. It comes down to technology. It comes down to the things that you mentioned at the start of this program. Companies like Huawei that invested in that infrastructure. Yes, 5G does play an impact with many things here. Uh, 5G also operates certain ports to make them more competitive even here in china automation automation means consistency consistency means you know getting that product there on time gone are the days of pretty much saying mm, uh it's it's in transit that term in transit that used to be used a lot in north america where's my package it's in transit well that's just not going to happen here in china they'll be able to pinpoint it 
Also, the investment in satellite infra uh, infrastructure. That satellite infrastructure is more detailed than Google is, Google satellites that are out there giving information, GPS information. The new, uh, I believe it's called Baidu or Beidu, something uh, satellites that are in the skies here in China, they are more detailed and more precision. Now, the BRI has expanded actually to 152 countries. Uh, maybe it's grown in the three in the last hour here or so, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're probably it right. has grown. Now, the interesting part about that is, and I'm going to you know, reinforce your uh, comments earlier by say, saying, saying that you know, these infrastructure, these, these are gaining relationships throughout countries and continents. Now, let's look at Africa for a moment. The United States, Britain, UK, okay, and France had many decades to invest in these infrastructures. Now, what they have failed to, to do is really you know, do exactly that. You're starting to see railway lines now being put into these countries. Well, I mean, we're in 2023. I mean, uh, there's 60 to 70,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in China, a country that, you know, in the last 30 years has seen a miracle happen. Now, they're moving that whole strategy across the globe and connecting these trade routes. Well, these old trade routes used to be back in biblical times where people used to trade, whether it was the Silk Road trading or whatever uh, back in the, the early days. Well, what China is doing is not only putting that infrastructure in the rail lines, the shipping lines, the airlines, uh, you know, the the train lines. I mean, there's a train that lives leaves the city of Chongqing and goes all the way to Germany. Uh, you know, so to add to this, who benefits the most out of this? And here's the interesting point: we may think it's just logistical companies, but in fact, a it's the end user somebody buying that product, B, it's the distributor, maybe somebody that's importing that product, and also uh, something else to, to keep in mind is this helps be these countries be competitive. So if you're in you know, an African country many years ago and you had problems getting door-to-door -door service or rail service, well, that infrastructure is in place now. These small communities that had no connection to the world uh, are actually managing to do that. I mean, your thoughts, uh, you know, where this could go, Cyrus? Yeah, Alex, you, you bring up a good point. And I think it just goes back to my uh, original point here is that we see a lot of talk from the United States. And, you know, I even had my father, he sent me a, a newspaper article that was from the Orlando Sentinel back in our hometown. And it was this it was this grand thing, like saying, look, you know, Biden is meeting with the other G20 leaders. You know, they're finally going to bring this um, amazing development to the Middle East. You know, they're going to really help out all of these Muslims in the Middle East. And what's interesting is, is I, I did a full breakdown of China's Belt and Road Initiative in the Middle East. And what's interesting about that is, is you look at the infrastructure um you know, things that they have built in the Middle East, even, for example, when you look at the Muslims that make their um, uh, annual trip to do the Hajj, you know, the, 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 the sacred journey for every Muslim that they must do once in their life. Uh, you have Muslims from around the world, you know, traveling to Mecca and Saudi Arabia. So all of the, the trains, the buses, uh, the entire infrastructure where they are getting around and doing this once in a lifetime pilgrimage, all of that's been built by China. So you could literally say that China has is 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 directly impacting the lives of you know tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Muslims, you know, as they're making this trip to Mecca and doing this 
you know, pilgrimage that every Muslim should be doing at least once in their their life. So I think that's um, that's a really big thing. I mean, Alex, you've got a really good, you know, you just had on the slide there. Um, the this is the I think I believe this is the five G port that's in Tianjin. So I was I was reading about our our biggest port in the United States, which is in Long Beach, California. Um, you know, when COVID happened, we had significant delays because you know we couldn't get the personnel in there. It is it's extremely old. The infrastructure uh, we we just cannot. You know, it, it is the largest by size in the United States, but it's run incredibly inefficiently. And here you have you know these images from Tianjin uh, in China. You have Huawei has built a 5G network there. Uh, you have everything is going on. It's it's incredible. They have, I, I believe, up to 75 autonomous vehicles that everything is running autonomously. Okay. I mean, so instead of having workers on the ground in the port, people are in a control room monitoring everything. Everything is run much more efficiently because these machines have artificial intelligence. They know exactly the timing. You can imagine having hundreds of uh, cargo uh, ships coming in, you have all of these vehicles that are moving around and, you know, transporting these these cargo por ports. So it's incredible just how advanced China is. Again, you know, this is something that we're seeing. We, we, we can't really see that anywhere else in the world is how artificial intelligence, how the mm -hmm. 5G network. I mean, this is this is what's interesting is, you know, you look at the Middle East specifically, Look at the United Arab Emirates, UAE, you know, who, by the way, just joined the Belt and Road or who just joined the BRICS alliance. They'll be joining mm. as a full member in January 2024, along with Saudi Arabia, along with Iran. So these are some very big countries that obviously have a dominant share of the oil production, the crude oil production in the world, with the addition of, you know, when you look at Russia, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and now the United Arab Emirates. You now, you know, the BRICS alliance now controls 50% of crude oil production. That's massive. I mean, that's a huge control of that. But you look at the UAE. I've, I've been there personally. I've, I've I visited it back um, uh, a few years ago. But they, they've they been running on Huawei's 5G network for years now. And they, they have some of the fastest internet speeds. They have the whole infrastructure done. I was just reading today on Twitter, there's a new article that came out in Germany where the German government had actually gone forward and they have actually installed part of the Huawei equipment because, you know, there's a huge concern of security in the West, but they've realized, you know, it's hardware. You know, we, we, we actually need to have this infrastructure built and Huawei makes the best stuff. I mean, it's just as, as simple as that. You know, why are we going to handicap ourselves? And, you know, the German government obviously said, look, you know, we've tested it. You know, we, we believe it's not a national and security risk. We're going to go ahead and move forward with this. So you're seeing some some countries that are kind of breaking away from that from that U.S., the U.S. orders. Right. I mean, we go back. Mm -hmm. This is so funny. Remember when Trump Trump had basically said to the U.K., you need to do this. You need to ban you need to ban Huawei. I mean, the interesting thing is Huawei built the entire 4G network in the U.K., so now the you know the UK government again this was back in 2020 they said okay we have a 7 year plan to replace the Huawei equipment due to national security concerns i mean it's hilarious because it's like oh okay so you know it's a 7 year plan it's going to take you 7 years to rip out all that Huawei equipment and then reinstall it with something else uh, meanwhile you know the you know your your customers and your citizens in the UK are going to suffer because they're going to be years behind getting the right infrastructure getting this um 
you know, getting this deal as far as getting advanced 5G network. I actually shared a tweet about that a few weeks ago where, again, it said, I think it was a few years ago, it said, um, I think it was three years ago, it said, it said the UK is going to abandon Huawei. And now just the last month, they said, uh, you know, 5G expert, the UK is falling years behind and getting 5G, you know, because they're ripping out the Huawei equipment. I want to add to this 5G to let people really understand what it means. And I mean, it has a lot to do with really uh, <laughs> think about this for a moment. If people want to get surgery and they're in remote villages or uh, they're in other countries and can't get accessibility to healthcare, the technology of 5G really has solved the problem. Uh, I've been to places here in Chongqing that have actually shown us remote operating, okay, precision operating, not just from, you know, working ports from, uh, you know, an office cubicle, maybe a thousand miles away. But this is, you know, stuff that is really changing lives here. Now, people, you know, in the West might say, in the collective West, they might say, wow, okay, so big deal. The Internet's a little bit faster in your phone. What's a big deal? It really is a big deal. Because we're talking automotive, you know, autonomous cars as well. I was just in one of the data parks here in Chongqing. Now, you might think, third, you know, 3,000 uh, people uh, that, you know, go around the side. Or maybe it was 30,000. Anyway, uh, we'll find out that figure later. But it has many companies on it. And these companies are using this technology. And it, they're trying to innovate it to try to see, you know, how can cars change? Well, what I learned from the EV market here, and I I view this really as a stem to the uh, BRI, is this is the collaboration of many companies here in China working together. The Huawei's, the BYD's, the NEOs, the Avatar 1-1's, all these companies working together, the mapping. Now, in other parts of the world, a competitor is a competitor. In China here, it's how can we all make this work? How can all these companies collaborate together? And some of them are actually Western companies as well, uh, having no problem selling their product here. It's not just the other way around where, you know, a lot of uh, people think that it's just China dumping goods into North America. In fact, a lot of Western companies are actually in collaboration in some of these new energy vehicles here. The interesting part is, is they're trying to find ways to improve people's lives. For example, uh, there's a uh, organization here that monitors and helps support these cars. It's called Kieri. And this division really it, it has a standard that helps people understand how automobiles work. It's kind of like a, I don't want to say it's a testing facility, but it's more of a research facility to help these automotive people uh, to, you know, to innovate these cars. Now, you might think, okay, uh, New energy vehicle, it's a battery, it's a car, that's it. No, in fact, if you've ever driven in some of these vehicles here, which are quite affordable as well, there's many price points to enter that market, but this is actually changing lives. I got into this car, I was driving the Avatar 1-1, briefly up the uh, highway uh, towards the airport. It went into autonomous mode. Then the fireplace came on in the, the, you know, the LED fireplace Cyrus came on and, you know, I'm sitting there relaxing in this car. The music goes in, the massage chair goes on, the ambiance inside the car. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. 
this isn't bad. Uh, this is very good. And then you start to say, wait a minute, you know, the average person spends two to three hours in a, in a major city in North America, two to three, maybe four hours a day in their car. Well, in fact, if a car can help you, you know, also prevent you from getting into an accident, nothing's 100% yet, but prevent you from getting into an accident, lower that stress level of driving, give you more of a, an understanding. These cars could even see 50 to 100 meters into fog. That is how really uh, technology has, uh, you know, greatly advanced here uh, in China. Uh, Cyrus, what is the NEV market like in the United States? Yeah, actually, I want to talk specifically about that EV market because, um, Alex, I was listening to a, an awesome audio clip yesterday. It was an interview, actually, with Forbes. And there is a gentleman by the name of Tule, uh, T-U-L-E, Tule. Uh, he is the CEO, I believe he is the, he has a company called Sino Auto Insights, Sino Auto Insights. Mm -hmm. But he is basically the authority figure on kind of all things EV related, um, I mm -hmm. believe, in the United States and China. Uh, very, very smart gentleman. Um, and Tula uh, had just gone to, I believe he was in, in an auto show in uh, Shanghai, I believe it was recently. But he said, so anyways, Forbes sat him down and he had a couple of really big, big insights that, that I want to share. So first of all, the Forbes editor said, Tula, what is the one thing that you noticed when you went back to Shanghai? And he said, the biggest thing I noticed was number one was there were a lot of expat CEOs that were, you know, that hadn't been to China in two, three, four, five years. And as you know, Alex, so, you know, I met in mm -hmm. Shanghai a few months ago. I mean, it was my first time back to China in four years, obviously because of the COVID pandemic. But right. he said these auto executives and people within the EV industry, they had gone back to Shanghai. And he said, the first thing I noticed was just how surprised these executives were at how fast China is advancing in this field. And he said that it's no doubt about it that China is leading this industry. They are inventing truly amazing things. And, you know, what we're seeing right now, I mean, to answer your specific question, what is the EV industry here in um, the United States? Well, it is definitely, um, you know, dominated by Tesla. I mean, Tesla has mm -hmm. a, a very large market share here. Um, it is incredibly successful. Um, I, you know, full disclosure, I also drive a Tesla uh, here in the United States. Um, I do it just because of the gas prices here are so ridiculously expensive. Um, and it's, and it is extremely economic, you know, to be, you know, to actually have an EV. I'm not, I'm not one saying like, oh, I want to do my part for the environment. I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a counter argument to that. Is is there really an environmental benefit? But obviously, there's a financial benefit with going going EV just just in the sense of saving that money and and also uh, you know having better access to parking spots. You can always get premium parking if you have an EV. So it, it is it is certainly gaining a lot of momentum. But I think that's what I want people to understand as well, Alex. Is that you know when we're talking about EVs, fifty percent of every Tesla is made in the Shanghai Gigafactory. Uh, mm. So what the, the smartest thing that China ever did with, and this is really an incredible move, and I broke this down in a full video, is that China has actually welcomed in Tesla, and they have made Tesla the center of the Chinese EV ecosystem. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand because we kind of get in this battle where like, oh, you know, BYD is doing really well, Xpeng, Neo, you know, who cares? You know, Li Auto, all of these, you know, Chinese companies are rising. Uh, well, guess what? They they can't, you know, they're never going to compete with Tesla. Tesla the, the, is the goat. Tesla is the best. And it's like, well, Tesla wouldn't be possible without China. 
That's that's why Elon Musk went to China. That's why the Shanghai Gigafactory exists. And the other thing that we have to really realize is that um, the other insight that Tula ex- that shared is he said the big race right now is trying to get EV vehicles down to a very affordable price point in the United States, right? He mm-hmm. wants to develop a premium, you know, for example, I mean, if you're going to have a premium Tesla, I think it's the Model X. So it's around $100,000. I mean, it's not a cheap car at all. Uh, I have the, the Model Y, which is basically just your your standard version. It's, you know, much, much cheaper than that. It's just a, you know, four-door sedan, uh, you know, your basic entry-level model. Um, I think maybe that's the three or the Y can't remember, but I've got the Y it's, it's a, it's much, it's much cheaper than that. But he's like, if you want to build a premium model in the United States, it still costs you a hundred thousand dollars. Uh, but one of our uh, persons in the, uh, one of the, one of our people in the chat, they had said, look at the Ford factory. Uh, they, they are partnering with CATL, which is the leader in the battery mm-hmm. technology. And even the New York times wrote an article that was really fascinating and said that nobody can compete, can compete with China when it comes to battery technology. There's no one even close to it. So, you know, I mean, this is what's funny. I mean, we have some trolls in the chat here that are like, oh, you guys are shilling. You guys are just, you know, talking nonsense about China. To be honest, uh, we we look at China in, in a very fair way because we're just, we're just saying the truth. I mean, here you have the New York Times just coming out and, I mean, they had an amazing intro. The very first paragraph to that said, whoever controls the battery industry controls the future of the world because this technology is so important. And right now, China has an insurmountable lead and no one's even close to them. No one's even close, Alex. So again, it's it's not my words. It's not your words. It's not like that's what the Chinese government wants us to promote. You know, we're just, you know, in, in fairness, this, yeah. is, this is what the New York Times is telling us. You know, and this is what, when you look at, this is why I go to industry experts, somebody like Tula, who literally runs a, company called Sino Auto Insights. He, he is the authority figure, all things related to EV, whether that's US or China. And he, and this is, I'll come to the conclusion here. He said, what's happening in China is that you're able to get a premium EV for well under 50,000 know, US dollars. And the only way the United States is going to do that is if the American companies partner with Chinese battery manufacturers and partner with Chinese companies to get that price point down. In the United States, if we were going to build it in America only with American technology, impossible. It will not happen. So again, it goes back to what my core mission is on YouTube, and it's always promoting um, the United States and China working together. You know that. You know you know that that's my mission. You call me the peace ambassador, and that's something that I always want to, um, you know, strive for. But again, when it's this, when we hear these messages of the United States should decouple from China, we we want to move every factory out. No, there's actually going to be the opposite. We're actually going to see more Chinese companies coming here and opening factories in the United States just to take advantage of, you know, the labor market here, um, you know, the the conditions here and potentially, you know, hopefully bringing more Chinese EVs into the United States. And I mean, what's interesting, Alex, is we're also going to see uh, Xiaomi, which is which has made an amazing makes an incredible smartphone you know it's it's a it's the highest quality to price ratio uh it's not a very high price point but it's a very high quality phone they're they're going to be debuting their ev uh automobile next year in china so again like this is much more advanced and it's it's just ludicrous when people are critical of the Chinese EV industry. Uh, I know there are some very well-known anti-China YouTubers. We don't need to na- name their. We don't need to mention their names on here to, you know, bring down the quality of this stream because you know they're they're just living in denial and you know just talking about how 
terrible um, you know, the China EV industry is. But again, you know, let's go away from the anti-China YouTubers who have an incredible bias and are just so jaded to what's actually happening in China. Let's go to industry experts, someone like Atula, who can actually give us a more accurate insight into what's really happening in China. And again, go to New York Times, go to anybody that really understands the EV industry. The future is China, and it's it's not even close. I'm going to add to that. Please. And I think there's a very big misunderstanding about what this EV market really is, this new energy vehicle market. I mean, people think in the United States, of course, Tesla is a, a very fine automobile. There's no doubt about that. But the misunderstanding here, Cyrus, is you have the people that feel these cars just don't have power. Or, you know, my car that I drive with petrol is the way forward and it will always be the forward. Uh, that misunderstanding of actually the mechanics behind these cars, how these cars operate, what their purpose is on the road. This isn't about, you know, China just saying, okay, everybody, drop the petrol cars. Let's go to battery power cars. That's it. And, uh, you know, trust us. I've been in this city of Chongqing for two years. Now, this city is a prime example of where I think future cities are going. Chongqing, it can hold its weight in population, that's for sure, 30 million plus. So let's put this city up against major cities in North America. Let's put it up against New York. Let's put it up against London. Let's put it up in major cities, uh, you know, in other parts of the globe. Mexico City, for example. Okay, that's actually good, a, a good example. Let's go one-to-one -one with Mexico City and Chongqing here. Both are very, very populated cities, okay? Mexico, major pollution problem. Chongqing, on the road to the solution to the problem. Yep. Almost all new cars that I'm seeing on the roads here, especially whether they're in the delivery whether they're in the DD or the taxi companies, like we call T3 here, they are mostly powered by new energy vehicles. Now, these companies are in collaboration with the taxi companies. Okay, now, if you drove in these cars, if you've ever been a passenger in these cars and you're blindfolded and you're told, sit down, uh, tell me, battery powered or gas powered? You couldn't tell the difference. To be honest, you cannot tell the difference. Now, there's going to be people in there saying, "I won't go. I, you know, I'm staying with, uh, uh, you know, my my car. Uh, you know, I want to lay rubber. It's, you know, this is what I want to do." I understand that point of hearing that car, maybe muscle cars, or I don't know what they call them, hot rods, <laughs> yeah. in my days. But this is about car companies that have to innovate. They have to. This is coming, North America. Whether you like it or not, this is coming to the shores near you. You cannot avoid what's happening here in China. 16.2 million of these units have gone out the door. That is nothing to what the potential. I just spent last week at the Smart China Expo, and I saw stuff that is on its ways to the shores there. Now, people might say, mm, I can't really afford a Tesla. And then they sit in a BYD, Beyond Your Dreams vehicle, and they say, wait a minute, this price point is interesting. Or they're a small delivery country company in the United States. Maybe they a bakery or something. 
Well, there's Wuling automobiles. Some of these EV cars are as cheap as four or five thousand dollars. Okay. Some of them are go up to forty to fifty thousand dollars. I mean, this market is massive. Is it going to slow down here? Absolutely not. Yeah. This country has set the infrastructure up for it. It's set the collaboration up for it. It's what's going on inside these cars. Trust me, guys. When you sit in these cars and you see what these cars can do, not just it's not just about driving. It's the experience. Imagine getting on a road, Cyrus. For example, you lived in British Columbia. A lot yep. of rainy days down there. Sometimes very hard to see in front of you. Imagine these cars telling you what's 50 or 100 meters in front of you through that rain, through yep. radar cameras, through sensors that actually can save your family's lives in road accidents or things like that. This is about, you know, changing the whole way we look at driving. It's not about driving you out of your, you know, car or it's not necessarily uh, uh, an environmental drive here. The other thing that I want to add to that is there is absolutely no incentive for these right. big three automobile companies in the United States to actually go through with this. Okay. And what I mean by that is why would you convince General Motors Ford or any of these companies to come out of that. The oil companies are definitely not going to talk them out of it. Yeah. The, you know, the petroleum companies that make gasoline and diesel fuel, they're not going to talk them out of it. In fact, they might start their own propaganda drive against these very vehicles by saying, wow, American muscle, you got to have that car. Nothing wrong with having that car. If you want to have that car, it's no problem. But for the average person that wants to improve their life, imp improve their pocketbook, and improve certain things, this is an alternative to them. No one's saying you got to go out and do this tomorrow morning. But I'm going to tell you, it's going to come to a price point. Laugh as they may, some of these people, uh, at, at what we're saying about this car market. Oh, it's just a fad or it might not happen. I'm going to tell you right now, Cyrus, yeah. and I think you agree on some of these points. These cars are coming to the shores. They're looking for collaboration. They're welcoming companies like, you know, Chevy and all these Fords and all these, you know, even uh, Mercedes. They're welcoming them to the table with their technology and say, let's Absolutely. collaborate. Let's get together. Let's have board meetings. Let's find a price point for somebody that wants to get into that vehicle. It is happening. Whether you like it or not, it's going to continue to happen. And the major, major, major push for this new energy vehicle market is in play. And that's where we go all the way back. We do a full circle all the way back to the Belt Road. How are you going to get these vehicles to market? Well, with one of the greatest infrastructures ever put in place, connecting 152 countries from China, that is the BRI. And if you got to ship battery-powered vehicles, you're putting them on the rail tracks, and those rail tracks are going right into Europe. And yep. that is a price point and a competitive price point there. I mean, this you can see this. I can see it here. It's almost like, you know, I met a lady that was at the Smart China Expo. She was um, with the uh, in the Austrian pavilion. She said, basically, these cars are smartphone on wheels. Yeah. That's the way she put it. Nice. And that is where I think we're going with this. You know, we we look at this market here and we just think, oh, you know, the, the average person might still fall into that. Well, China doesn't know how to make great products. Well, in fact, they do. Uh, if you're a drone operator, you like DJI products made in China. Oh, yeah. If you're watching this program right now on a laptop or, you know, uh, a smartphone, 
most doubtably made in China. Now you might say, well, it's an Apple product. Well, yeah, no, it's designed in California, made in China. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hand that over to you, Cyrus. I, and I don't think that North American market is really accepting what's about to happen. I think we are going to see a massive amount of these vehicles hit the streets in America. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to convince people yeah. by saying to them, give up your gas powered car. But let's say you're a family of four and you have all four, you know, cars that are all petro and uh, they're using gas. Let's see the alternatives. And, and, you know, China's not just looking at automobiles here. They're looking at delivery, uh, delivery trucks. They're looking at, you know, half ton trucks. They're looking at taxi companies. They're looking at, you know, I drive an e-bike here. I don't know if you know that, yeah. Cyrus. I drive I, an yeah, e-bike e in Chongqing here. My, my e-bike is competitive to any road scooter. It can do 50 to 70 kilometers an hour, okay? This bike costs me two U.S. dollars a month to drive. Yeah, that's quite amazing. That is it. It's battery powered. It's got all the power. Yeah. Yeah, I think Alex. Um, oh, th there's definitely been some uh, prediction of that as well. I have read some uh, another article. I forgot the news source, uh, but it had basically predicted that as well. Is that the next step is for more of these Chinese auto manufacturers to, you know, come into the United States and certainly even Europe and Western nations, uh, simply because of the price point. You know, and I mean that, that's that's where we see that on a greater scale with other things as well. You know, I mean it's the same reason why, um, you know, for example, why did Apple go to China in the first place. Why do they manufacture there, right? Obviously, they partner with Foxconn. Foxconn owns the factories in China. That's where your iPhones are produced, and it's because you have this incredible, you have this incredible price to quality ratio that's really unmatched in China. And and what's interesting is, is even though the the Chinese manufacturing, the cost of that has risen significantly, right? Salaries are higher. You've got pensions and and health insurance plans and things like that. I mean, it's it's significantly higher to produce in china but you've got the quality that's there and that's why there's still so many companies that are uh, you know manufacturing in china you know when i was back in china in june you know i went to a textile factory you know i had the opportunity to see how you know over 25 different western brands are still choosing to manufacture their textiles in china because it's just that price to quality ratio sure it's a it's a higher end manufacturer they're they're you know do a lot of work with european brands uh, european ski jackets or european golf shirts um you know and, and they need to have that high quality ratio and so yeah i think alex what we're looking at is i mean everything's tied together the other thing that i mentioned in my breakdown on the ev industry is that when the chinese government gets behind a plan when they really get behind something that that is obviously you get the green light from the chinese government you know that basically means that you know china's going to do it and we've seen mm -hmm. that with other industries as well. For example, artificial intelligence. We know that the Chinese government said, look, you know, there is a strategic shift. We are going to be prioritizing that. When that happens, all of a sudden, you know, different, you know, regions, for example, could get tax advantages. Okay. If you owe, if you're an AI company, you come to this city in this district, you know, you're going to be able to save on your corporate taxes because we want to prioritize this, this, this AI industry. We want to hire more people in this industry. The interesting thing was, is that when you go back in time and you look at how China became an EV player, what, what happened is, is that they actually sent risk in China. It's something that many of our Western politicians are saying. I'm sorry about that. And to answer that question, I've decided to...
Nice. There we go. Sorry. Nice little plug for my factory <laughs> that I visited, Kalito. Shout out to Tommy and the team over at Kalito, um, you know, for having me uh, visit there. They're over in uh, Tiangin uh, near Wuxi there. And so this was an awesome opportunity to go and and uh, visit. You can see that red shirt on the right is Swix. It's a, a European, I believe it's a Norwegian, or I know it's a Scandinavian brand, I believe. Uh, but where's this like, show? Where's this showroom that we're looking at? This this showroom is actually in uh, it's it's in a factory. It's called Kalito. And there, there's the owner. He's actually, he's a co-owner. Uh, his name is Tommy. He's originally from Norway. He's been traveling uh, back to, he's been traveling between China for 16 years. Uh, but again, we, you know, I, I mean, it's a beautiful showroom. And, you know, he, uh, you know, Tommy, uh, his co-founder, co co Andy, who's a Chinese national, uh, they invited me. Uh, you know, they, they, they mm. sponsored my trip to China. You know, they brought me out to China specifically to tell their story to the world and, and, and how they're, it was it was and it was awesome. It was a great video, really well received. If you haven't watched that, um, the the title is "I Visited a Chinese Factory." What I saw shocked me because it truly was shocking, Alex. It was it was incredible mm -hmm. to walk through the factory, you know, see you know the two hundred plus workers in there, the the conditions that they're working in. Um, you know, Tommy really brings a great insight into this because you know he is Norwegian. He's based in Norway. He just travels between China and Norway. But what he's what, what they do is they do things a little differently. You know, they they pay their workers a little bit higher salary. Uh, the the workers that are at that factory they don't they don't actually live on site. He said, no, we want you. We're going to pay you a higher salary so that you can go home and be with your families. Quite an wow. interesting concept, right? Because he said, look, you know, we want you to enjoy your work here, but we want you to make sure that you know if you're a mom and dad, like we want you back home with your kids. Like that's where you should be. Uh, in addition to that, he did another thing that was quite amazing. Is he said. Uh, you know, quite typical for Chinese companies is that, you know, your year end bonus, you actually get that after Chinese New Year, right? They want the, you know, when the employees, you know, they go away for two, three weeks for Chinese New Year, you know, as an incentive to get them back to the company, they, they, they hold out on their bonuses. And Tommy said, no, let's do the opposite. Let's, let's give them their bonuses before they go on holiday, because that's when they need it. You know, let's give mm. them their bonus so that they, when they go back to their hometown for their two, three week holiday, you know, they can actually use that bonus and actually, you know, enjoy their holiday even more. And we're going to, we're going to create loyal customer, loyal employees that way. So, I mean, he's brought in a great Western mindset mixed in with the Chinese mindset. You know, they're producing some of the, some of the top European clothing brands. I mean, price points were, you know, 150 us dollars a shirt, you know, they're making it in his factory because he has the most advanced machines. And that's something that's amazing is, you know, even what I what I noticed is, is, uh, is I'm not an expert in the textile industry. So I went there to learn. And he said, look, in Jiangin, this this area, this is where a lot of the manufacturing and textile is. Well, within a 20 minute radius of our factory, we have the, the cotton factory, we have the button factory, we have the zipper factory, we have the dye factory. If you need to, you know, obviously all, it needs to be dyed all these different colors. All of this is within 20 minutes. In addition, all of the machines that we're using, right? The machines that he's using, it was a very advanced uh, six needle thread machine. You know, it's, it's not like your common stitching one that has one. It has six different threads going in to, to produce that high quality stitch. And I'm like, wow, where's this machine made? Oh, 20 minutes down the road. You know, if, if, if the machine breaks down within 20 minutes, we can have, you know, a technician here. It gets fixed within an hour and we're back up in production. Um, you know, the laser cutting machines, all of this technology is made in China as well. And all of those factories are, are within that area as well. So it's quite interesting how they've built the whole logistical supply chain there because all of the raw materials, everything you need is within 
you know, a 20 mile radius. And that's what, that's that advantage in China. That's that, that China speed that we're always used to talking about. And so it was a really great insight into how that textile industry works and why, you know, European companies are saying, Hey, you know, sure, there's more manufacturing going around. Obviously, a lot of uh, textile manufacturers have gone to Vietnam or Bangladesh. Mexico, Bangladesh. I mean, you know, obviously there's, you know, but there's enough to go around. You know, there's still, mm -hmm. you know, there's still a great quality. And I think with what Tommy has been able to do at that factory is because he's a Norwegian national, he's able to really sell that well because he goes, he tra he's based in uh, in Norway and he travels all throughout Europe and he meets with 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 other clothing manufacturers and says, hey, I'm Tommy. I actually own a factory in China. So you're dealing with me, you know, a Norwegian, you know, person. So they have that trust factor. And it's like, look, you know, we are at, we're at all the international standards. And he said, even even the Chinese government, he said, it's very difficult to you know, pass the inspections that they have to go through, you know, to make sure that they meet these quality controls. It's much more complex than the average Westerner knows. And obviously, you know, everything is, is uh, you know, he, he knows all the employees there, treats them well. I mean, it's it's really a great factory, uh, you know, that, that that because he says, look, these European brands, they need to, they need to make sure to know, hey, we're, we're, we're producing our clothing ethically, you know, in a great manner. The people that are working in these factories are treated with respect. They're given a high wage. They're, they have a good career there. So again, it was really an eye-opening experience to me. And, you know, Alex, I hope to go back to China to, to uh, visit these factories because I had so many fans saying, hey, go to, a, go to the Tesla auto factory, go to the yeah. shoe factory, go to the electronic factory. You know, we want to see more of these factories in China. So Maybe that's something you and I can partner on in the future. Absolutely. I'd love to love to get back to China, love to do these factory visits because it was an eye-opening experience for me as well. Obviously, I lived in China for 10 years, but I worked in a very different industry. I worked in the golf and hospitality industry. So we were, were, we were focusing on more planning events around China as opposed to you know, manufacturing products in China. So this was, you know, uh, for someone that lived in China for 10 years, it was an eye-opening experience to, um, you know, to actually see a factory in the flesh and be there. It was, it was awesome. I, I really hope to get back and see more factories and, and produce those kind of videos. I, a lot of people really enjoyed that. My initial insight to China was, you know, back in early 2000, 2001, when I came here and started importing and exporting from actually, uh, you know, manufacturers in Shenzhen. And then I began to realize that it wasn't just about price points. Like a lot of people would say, okay, you know, maybe these are cheap. You've heard that cheap Chinese goods. Heard it all the time, right? We hear it all the time. And in fact, the reason why these products uh, would be, let's say the quality would be compromised is let's say the end buyer uh, would say, no, I don't want to pay, you know, $5 for that glass. I want to pay $2 or a dollar for that glass. Now the uh, manufacturer is going to say, well, yeah, we can produce it for a dollar, but the quality is not going to be superior to, let's say the $3 glass. Right. And this is what happens. So you get the price points. And of course, then the, you know, the buyer walks out and says, oh man, I got a great deal. He offered me three for quality product. No problem. But you know, I'm going to pay a dollar for it. Well, yeah, you're going to pay a dollar. But the problem is, is that the specking, the, you know, all the things that go into engineering, these types of products are going to be compromised. Now that is possible here in China. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is to open up a company here is pretty much encouraged and free there's actually uh, i know within Chongqing, the administration charge to open up a company 
to my understanding, it's almost zero. Uh, the government wants there to be not many barriers to help people or entrepreneurs that want to follow their dreams or follow their ambitions to open up a company. It's like a sport here. There's companies everywhere here. Some prosper, some don't. Some ideas they try, some don't. But it's not, you know, all that money is not tied up in administration, hiring lawyers, hiring, you know, expensive people to do company formations, you know, auditors and stuff. Yes, of course, there's, there's uh, you know, books and things that you have to audit. But tax here, <laughs> Cyrus, is not a bad name. I mean, the tax code here for what employees get taxed at and companies get taxed at is very favorable if you want to run a company. Uh, and it's very straightforward and most of it's online. I mean, I get uh, yeah. sometimes quite a quite a kick out of it when I'm walking by uh, some of these tax offices. I mean, the latest tax office I saw was in uh, one of the uh, nightclub areas here in the city. It's like, hey, man, you know, might as well go uh, visit the guys at the tax office here and then uh, go out for a beer and play some pool. I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely different dynamic here in China. When you're forming companies, when you're trying to bring something to the market, you have that support. And it's interesting how you showed your friend there and you toured around that, that company. I visited many companies in the last year, a motorcycle company. a uh, What else did we see? We saw a hot pot company, which is very popular here, that may just make the sauce. We saw a pharmaceutical company. We saw how they treat the employees. I mean, you know, some of these cafeterias were fully automated, amazing yeah. cafeterias. And some of this workforce is massive. I know we were at one of the phone operators, Oppo. Oppo has a yeah. major manufacturing, um, you know, a facility here in Chongqing. 10,000 employees. I mean, and I would ask, you know, where do these employees live? Well, we have a possibility to house them. We have accommodations. Now, if you think about it, you're a university student or a person that maybe didn't go to university. You have the opportunity to get into a good company. Now, of course, everybody wants their kids to go to university, right? Uh, this is a country that actually allows uh, kids to go and not become bankrupt as soon as they walk out of school with, uh, you know, a massive student loan debt of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the, the option for people here to, you know, really decide their destiny is pretty clear. Now, if some people, uh, academics is not a way forward, maybe a trade is a way forward. There's many opportunities, many cities that they can prosper in. But I'll give you an example. My experience when I was at the Oppo factory or even a pulp and paper factory that we visited uh, about an hour outside of uh, the city here, I was very clear with the guy. I said, well, how do you how do you recruit people bring them in well we recruit we train them on the spot we train them how to do this there's classes that uh, can educate them on how to save money uh, there's they'll open up bank accounts they will be able to save money send it back to their family or whatever so forth and forward i mean this is very interesting we see in north america a lot of these companies struggle to get employees because well housing is too expensive you know, how are you going to get an employee to work at a, I don't know, we'll use it, potentially what Amazon was trying to do in New York. How are you going to get somebody to go down and work for an Amazon at X amount of dollars an hour when you're living in New York, right? So yeah. this is the interesting thing about China is that it has all types of levels, layers, and accessibility to people, whether you're a company owner, whether you're a, 
you know, factory owner, whether you're a foreigner in this company country, it's quite uh, welcoming. My wife uh, recently opened up a company here in Chongqing about six months ago. The process was very, very straightforward. Yeah. And what I was quite surprised is a corporate bank account was open. Once the company was formed, a corporate bank account was open within 72 hours. Nice. Amazing yeah. Stuff. You know, Alex, I, I, when I was in Shenzhen, I had, you know, interviewed a, a gentleman that, um, you know, basically was an American citizen that opened up his uh, hedge fund. He had basically moved his hedge fund from Boston to um, Shenzhen. And it was a really great, it was called Snowball Capital. They had moved everything over and certainly they had to jump through some some hoops to do that. But I mean, he actually said it was actually pretty straightforward on the Chinese side. The harder side was actually on the American side going through that paperwork and doing that. But, you know, he had he had moved his whole hedge fund to Shenzhen with the simple thing of saying like, look, you know, we are, we are kind of investing in these emerging markets. We're investing in these industries like artificial intelligence and EV. And China is just simply too important to those industries to not you know, not spend significant time here. He said, originally we thought, okay, we're going to spend maybe three months out of the year. You know, maybe we do something short term just so we can be on the ground. But he also said, what's interesting is, is with these Chinese companies, there's not enough analysts that are really covering them. And the problem is, is that a lot of the analysts are based in Hong Kong. They don't have that intimate knowledge. And he said, you know what, how about this crazy idea? Instead of going to Shenzhen, you know, for a couple months out of a year, why don't we just move the company and why don't we just HQ in Shenzhen? Let's be on the ground. And he wow. said that's been very instrumental to him and his team because now, as you know, Alex, I mean, you know, now it's just like, hey, it changes the whole dynamic. Instead of, hey, we're based in Boston, we're coming in for a factory visit. Can we come one day? Now it's like, hey, by the way, we've moved our company to Shenzhen. We're now living full time in China. We're based in Shenzhen and we want to come see the factory. Very different pitch there, and he's been able to have a lot of insight, you know, in, interesting insights into, you know, the EV industry, into the AI industry, into all of these industries that are emerging, and and he has a lot more respect because you're going to garner that when you are on the ground in a Shenzhen and doing that. So it's it's really interesting, and you know, I, I do want to um, see we got a lot of super chats popping in here. I do want to give a shout out to uh, you know Trevor Norman, Peter there, John Lee, uh, guys that have been in here. Um, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, great supporters in here. Um, and, and Alex, I've, I've passed over 1600 people in my stream alone. I think yeah, combined we're well over 3000. So, um, you know, I just, uh, want to thank everybody for taking time out of your day to spend it with us here on YouTube. And, you know, I want to, um, I want to, I want to um, play that Joe Biden clip right now. Let's do that. Let's, yeah. let's do a little bit of a shift here, guys, in the show yeah. here. We've action packed the first part about the Belt and Road BRI. Uh, as you guys know, 10 year anniversary, uh, September the 7th. Uh, it's quite a dream. And it has now part of a reality in 152 countries worldwide and growing. We're going to shift now over to uh, some geopolitical stuff here. And uh, we're going to start with a clip. Uh, Cyrus, maybe you can set us up for this clip. And then uh, once you tell me to go, I will go on it. Yeah, I mean, this is again. I mean, I want to go. You know, I want to go on and talk about specifically the United States. And you know, again, this is some people might say this might be too critical. Maybe this is uh, you know poking fun at Joe Biden. But what I want people to understand is is how the United States is being perceived on the international stage right now. I had a European friend send this to me and just and just simply ask me a question. It's like, how do how do you guys 
put up with this? Like, how are American citizens acceptable that this is your leader? I mean, in my opinion, and again, I'm an outsider, you know, this is my European friend talking. He said, look, I would I would call for his immediate removal. But go ahead and play the clip of uh, President Biden. This is President Biden, you know, in Vietnam talking about the infrastructure deal uh, between the U.S. and Vietnam. All right, here we go. For, and uh, I see. I'm just following my orders here. Uh, staff, or is there anybody having spoken to? No, I ain't calling on you. I'm calling. I said I have five questions. Uh, I don't. Uh, anyway. I just think that there are other things on leaders' minds, and they respond to what's needed at the time. And look, nobody likes having celebrated international meetings if you don't know what you want at the meeting, if you don't have a game plan. He may have a game plan. He just hasn't shared it with me. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. Well, the, uh, excuse me, third world. The, uh, the, the, uh, the southern hemisphere had access to change. It had access. We, it wasn't confrontational at all. He came with me. Thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the count press thank, conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Alex, I'm going to I'm just going to comment on this because this is and the Oscar goes to <laughs> I mean, what, what, what's what's really sad about this, though, is that wow. this is how the United States is represented on the international stage. And again, I'm not yeah. taking a shot at Biden, but I'm simply I, I genuinely feel sorry for him. I mean, this he's he's approaching 81 years old. He is not in a capacity to run our country. It's as simple as that. He just is not mentally there. And it's an absolute embarrassment on the international stage when you're at this point. I mean, I mean, in fairness, he served his country for 40 years in the government. You know, Biden should be retired. He should be, you know, enjoying a peaceful life and enjoying his older years, not put in this position to be to, to ha quite frankly, have the most difficult job in the entire planet. So mm. with, but what's sad is, is that my Canadian friends, my European friends, my Australian friends, people are sending this to me. And it's like, Cyrus, like we used to think so highly of the United States you guys are a joke right now like this. And, you know, it's like, what, how do you guys put up with this? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's not like we have much choice. You know, it, it's, it's not like, you know, I don't think I don't think anybody really voted for Joe Biden thinking that Joe Biden is the guy that needs to be in charge of our country. People voted for Joe Biden because they didn't like Donald Trump. That's the only reason that Joe Biden got votes. No one thought that he is capable of leading the country or the right choice. Um, you know, Joe Biden, but you can see there, I mean, it's a disaster. He has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, I mean, you, you look at, you know, you know, we need a strong leader inside the United States. Um, 2024 election is going to be very interesting. I mean, we're already hearing reports that most likely Kamala Harris is going to go ahead and replace him. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he's even going to make it. I mean, there's no way he could go into a presidential debate. I mean, he'll get smoked by anybody on the Republican side just simply because he can't he can't stand there. He can't stand there and debate for an hour. It's just impossible for him Jeez. to do. And and I think that's where, you know, and again, what's what, what's interesting, though, Alex did this as well is, you know, we see this constant double speak from Biden on one side. He'll say, you know, even at this press conference in Vietnam, 
you, you played the clip earlier, you know, when we did the intro of the show, mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to contain China, you know, we want to work with China, you know, and then the next day it's, it's like, you know, not under my watch, China's not going to rise under my watch. <laughs> so you, you kind of see like the Chinese government is always looking at this. It's like, man, you guys keep saying one thing and then the opposite and then another thing and then the opposite and then another thing. It's just this constant cycle. And so you know, this is a big reason why the U.S.-China relationship is strained because Chinese officials have no interest in what the United States says because there, there's no continuity, right? Everything's just changes by the day. It's so fluid. No one knows what the heck's going on. I mean, I think like six times in his administration during his first term has Biden gone out and said something that contradicts the one China policy. And then, the, you know, all of a sudden, you know, his staff, oh, no, it's actually not what President Biden meant. Uh, the United States government, we adhere to the one China policy. Oh, but by the way, we're going to defend Taiwan. Wait, uh, I believe in Taiwan. I this, that, you know, it's just like, what, 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 what is our position? You know, like we need to have something just concrete and stick to it. You know, where we just kind of keep trying to play both cards and it's like, oh, no, we don't want to contain China. We want, you know, a rising China is beneficial to the U.S., uh, but then, you know, two days later, it's going to be like, well, we're going to go ahead and restrict. I mean, look at the new Huawei phone. I mean, it's yeah. so funny. You have SMIC, you know, who is a Chinese company selling parts to another Chinese company. It's like you guys have violated U.S. sanctions. You know, what planet are you guys thinking on? Uh, by the <laughs> way, I've got a full breakdown of that Huawei phone and how that is completely revolutionized. I mean, this is actually a game changer. This has completely changed the future of U.S.-China relations and also world geopolitics. I'm going to break that down in a new video, hopefully coming out in the next couple of days. But what's interesting is, is, I mean, this is as an American citizen. I mean, I love my country. I love, you know, I live in the United States. Uh, you know, it's where I was born. It's where my parents, and my family are. But I mean, there are so many problems inside this country. And, you know, we, we just, we're not addressing the issues. We have incredibly poor leadership inside this country. And we have incredible, incredibly, corrupt politicians. I mean, you look at the, some of the, like Mitch McConnell, um, you know, Joe Biden, uh, the Lindsey Graham, Lindsay, I mean, these, a lot of these people, I mean, like, why are, why are, why are the, the people that are making the most important decisions in our country, why they should all be in a nursing home. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I'm just speaking rationally here. Let's just speak the truth, you know? And I would say the same thing if, if you got, you know, you know, another world leader that's in, in this type of capacity, you know, they just simply can't be there. You know, there's, I'm absolutely for term limits. I'm absolutely for, um, you know, age restrictions, uh, there, there, you just cannot be, how could you, you know, I'll get you to give you a reference. You know, my mom is close to 80 years old. You know, we would not trust her with the care of our three children, you know, as far as like, Hey mom, can you watch over them for the next three hours? My wife and I'd like to go on a date. We, we don't do that because she's just not in that capacity. You know, physically, she can't keep up with them. You know, you know, it's just it's not a safe environment for the children or my mom. We, you know, we can't do that. You know, and I had the same thing with my mom. She, she told me she's like, hey, I really want to take our, your daughter out. I want to get her nails done. Can I drive her to the car? And I said, mom, you can't. It's too dangerous. And she got really upset with me. She's like, why are you restricting me? I'm like, mom, you, you, you're 80 years old. You have a hard time walking. You want to take my seven year old daughter out with you? What if somebody comes over and grabs her? There's nothing you can do that you're in a very vulnerable position here. Mm. And she's like, wow, I never, I never thought about that, Cyrus. You're right. I said, the safety of the children is the most important thing. You know, I just said, look, that's the reality of the situation, mom. Like no disrespect to you, but as her father, I've got to make the most important decisions. And it's the same thing. You know, we cannot have this type of leadership in the United States on the international stage. It makes us look incredibly weak, incredibly weak. And it's something that needs to change. But again, it's like you come up here with Biden and it's like, well, we're going to 
We're partnering with the G20. We're going to take down China. We're going to we're going to build out. We're going to build better roads for the Middle East. We're going to build. We're going to do something that's amazing in the Middle East. It's like, yeah, let's let's actually do something. But on the flip side, you know, we're sending billions over to Ukraine. You know, American people are struggling. You know, the inflation is absolutely through the roof in this country. You talk about affordable housing. I mean, I, I had an, I saw another uh, somebody had put it's like, look at this chart. Beijing and Shanghai are completely unaffordable. This chart is absolutely shocking to the youth of China. They got to be so frustrated. I'm like, name me an affordable major city in the world. I mean, I was just in Vancouver, Canada last week, Alex. It's a disaster as far as housing and and the and the what the Canadian youth are feeling. You go on TikTok right now, you have hundreds of videos of just of Canadian young Canadians just like I I I'm I'm living in Vancouver. I have a I have a degree. I have a I have a master's degree to do this advanced education job. I make 40,000 Canadian a year. It's in it's unlivable. I can't pay my rent. I can't live in this country. It's like how are Canadians living here? You know like that's that, you know like it's it's a massive problem. You know Canada, US, I mean all, you know Europe, I mean, you know try about try living in a major city in Europe, you know, buying a, a 800,000 euro <laughs> house or something with interest rates at 7-8%. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, no chance, no chance. We we spoke about uh, uh, strong people uh, here. One of them is um, a guy that both you and I know that you just recently interviewed, Patrick Lancaster. Uh, for the audience that doesn't know who Patrick Lancaster is, Patrick Lancaster is a crowdfunded journalist uh, who has been following the conflict in the Ukraine uh, since, I believe. 2014, where most of the Western media will tell you that uh, this conflict started just last year. Uh, here's a figure for you, Cyrus, and I'm going to ask you this, and it's a little bit of a hmm, uh, let's a little bit of a contest. Okay, let's ask the general chat box, uh, everybody there in the comments, and yourself, how much money do you think the world or America has spent? on this conflict in the Ukraine? How much money do you think they've spent in the last year? Ballpark. Um, oh, geez. Uh, million, uh, billions. I mean, I have no, just, I, I actually don't know that number, but I know it's got to be north of uh, $20 billion. <laughs> so the first deal that was passed through the House and verified was $118 billion. That was in 2022. And then there's been various packages, military aid, arms uh you know packages to keep the government afloat in the ukraine to make the pension plans uh continue on the number is staggering i would earmark it around 250 billion dollars uh let's see what some of the people are saying in the chat what is the, everyone in the chat uh somebody says 100 billion uh someone says 800 billion 150 billion uh so okay in calculations here, um, I sat down last night and decided, hmm, let's guess and let's spend $250 billion on this crazy conflict that's been going on. If you add it up, Cyrus, it's if a, in a yearly calendar, let's say it's including, so Jimmy, Jimmy's saying $260 billion here as well. Okay. That is equals approximately 28 million US dollars per hour. Yeah, it's it's Last just year. A, it's incredible. I mean, it's it, it's it's incredible. 
Um, so we were talking about Patrick Lancaster here. Um, I will give you an idea of what kind of work Patrick does. Let's have a, a just a quick little screen share of uh, Patrick here on the front line hey, in um, the Donbass area. Yes, go ahead, Alex. Let me uh, let me. Um, I, I actually need to run. Uh, it's sure. uh, the school day this morning. I got to get the kids mm-hmm. ready for school and get them going. So um, I, I just want to. I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do? I'm gonna. I'll leave the channel going. I'll let you bring it home. I've got to get the uh, my right. kids are calling. Care, sorry. We got to get it going. <laughs> but uh, anyways, guys, I want. So thanks. I think we had a great chat, Alex. Um, you know, again, it's about. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative, the G20, you know, can, you know, the title of the stream is, can the U.S. stop the China's Belt and Road Initiative? I'll just leave my closing comments here. You know, it's, I, I always worry about the United States that we're stretched way too thin. You're talking about that number, $28 million a day mm-hmm. that we're sending over to Ukraine. And I mean, my, again, my, my opinion on Ukraine is that I, I want to find a solution to that war as fa- fast as possible. I'm going to be continuing to bring in more experts on that. It's not my area of expertise. I focus more on China, but I mean, it, as an American citizen, that's seeing my tax dollars going over there. Mm-hmm. You know, I want a conclusion to this as fast as possible. And for both you Russians and Ukrainians to stop killing each other and the w- war to stop. But, um, you know, Alex, I'll let you bring it home. Um, thank you again. I look forward to more live streams with you. We need to do this more regularly. Um, we had, we had, you know, many people in the chat. I mean, just awesome support from everybody. Um, if you haven't watched, uh, you know, watch our latest videos out and we got some more fun stuff coming out. My next video is going to be about Huawei and that phone and how that China has developed that seven nanometer chip that again, I, I believe has changed the entire future of us China relations. We're going to break that full video down. So, guys, uh, Alex, I'll, I'll keep right. the channel going on my end, but uh, go ahead and bring it home, and, and thanks for everything. <laughs> thanks, Iris. Take care. All right. Okay, so um, just to bring you guys up to date here, Patrick Lancaster continually reports from the Donbass area here. We can see some of his uh, amazing work here. Several uh, coming shells are coming right I'll now. Let you guys listen to this for a moment. Stop right to slow suggest. Прошло обстрел минометный с Васильков. Нет, это это САУ Васильки. Не-не-не-не. Работает САУ. Да? So that just gives you an idea of Patrick Lancaster, what he's been doing in the reporting in that area almost a decade. Now, I sat down with Patrick before the show. Uh, If you're coming and watching from Cyrus Jansen's channel, you will know exactly uh, what video I'm talking about on Cyrus's channel uh, yesterday or two days ago. Uh, It has over 300,000 views where he interviewed a very good friend of mine, Patrick, who I've met in person and also um, really supported uh, in the early stages of his channel. Uh, This is a man that risks his life every day to tell you, the viewers, the other side of the story. Uh, I decided to sit down with him before the show here and have an interview. And let's listen to see what Patrick has to say about the current situation here. And we'll talk to you guys in a bit. So, Patrick, thank you for coming back on to this program uh, with me today. 
Uh, we're playing this segment during the live stream here with Cyrus and I. Uh, we are just a few hours away from our live stream, but I thought I would bring you onto this program. Your video went absolutely viral uh, yesterday with Cyrus Jansen uh, clocking in at over 300,000 views uh, within the first 24 hours that it's been published just on YouTube alone. Um, this is an indication here that people really are now starting to pay attention and finding, tr getting down to the truth of really what is going on in that area. I know that Cyrus had you on last year on his program, and this year, I don't think even he uh, expected this type of a response. Patrick, maybe you can share a little bit more insight on you know what is going on down in that region right now. Are we going to continue to see this zone, uh, you know, going into 2024, maybe 2025? Give it to us here over the next couple of minutes so that our audience can really take in on what is really going on down there in the Donbass area. And for everyone that's just joining this program, Patrick is a crowdfunded journalist who has been documenting everything that's been going on in the Donbass area since 2014, not since the 2022, when the Western media has uh, said that this conflict started. Patrick is his own YouTube channel called Patrick Lancaster uh, that has amassed almost 600,000 followers. There's a reason why he's one of the fastest growing channels here in geopolitics is because people want to get to the truth. And that's exactly what we're going to deliver here today. Patrick, tell us really in a nutshell here, uh, for this program and for these viewers, what on earth is going on down there? Tell us the truth, please. All right, well, first of all, uh, Alex, thanks for having me on again, as normal. And uh, Cyrus, it was great to uh, be on with you the other day. Uh, I'm glad the interview went uh, well. And uh, Alex, uh, hello to your uh, viewers. I hope they're all subscribed. Um, and uh, I guess as far as the situation here, well, we could just kind of go what's happening now, what's been happening. But right now I'm in the center of Donetsk. And in this last week uh, has been the first Russian election where the people of Donetsk and also Lugansk and Zaporozhye and her son. Um, but I'm, it was here in Donetsk, so I can tell you what I saw with my own eyes. This is the first time these people here have been able to take part in the Russian government as Russians. And uh, the Western mainstream media will have you believe that this area is full of Ukrainians and is part of Ukraine. And that's what I told the people that I was interviewing at the polls. And they laughed at me. And they laughed at the United States and Europe for saying that Donetsk is part of Ukraine. Uh, they said it's definitely not. They said it is part of Russia because the people want it part of Russia and it's always been part of Russia. These are not my words. These are the people's words. But even though the people were so happy to be taking part in these, in these elections, Ukraine was not. So Ukraine was hammering uh, the uh, city of Donetsk uh, with uh, Western supplied weapons, mainly 155 millimeter artillery shells um, on civilian areas. Now, the elections took place in kind of two parts. The first part was uh, eight days of mobile elections where these uh, mobile voting stations 
would go to different parts of the city and the territory and uh, have let people uh, vote, as particularly elderly and things like that, and people that just couldn't make it to the polls. Uh, and then the last uh, three days, which started last Friday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, were the um, the poll open polling stations. And this is where I went and started uh, filming what the people wanted, what the people felt about the the day. Uh, so I was there on um, um, uh, Friday documenting how these people felt. And the overwhelming feeling and opinion of these people was just happiness, uh, that they were able to take part in the, gov the Russian government, the Russian country. And unfortunately, Ukraine was hammering these uh, uh, civilian areas and literally – the last week, people have been dying every day here. I, myself, on Sunday, was at uh, seven, six or seven locations that had been hammered by Ukrainian shelling, some artillery and some rockets. And during the day, I was filming where artillery shells were coming down and uh, interviewed one woman whose father was severely injured um, during an attack on their home. Luckily, her two young children were inside and weren't injured. Now, this is all on my reports. It's all documented. I, I Anything I say isn't my opinions. It's people, what people tell me, the facts that they see, and what their opinions are. And all this is documented on my uh, YouTube channel, Patrick Lancaster. So this woman says her father was injured by the shelling. Her father, her mother, or the uh, daughter says that it was Ukrainian shelling. And I said, okay, why is this Ukrainian shelling uh, hitting your civilian home? And she said, uh, she, does, she doesn't know. I said, maybe there's a military target near uh, her. She said, of course not. It's only a civilian uh, area. And this is the common thing. Then I went to another home that the man told me a, a incendiary device came down on his roof and burned his home down. And he said it was Ukraine doing this. And uh, his mother as well, an elderly woman, said it was Ukraine doing this and that it was only a civilian area and that they see Ukrainian uh, drones above and that Ukraine knows it's only a civilian area but still fires on them. Um, their neighbor showed me a piece of what he said was a United States uh, cluster bomb that had come down on their house just a, a couple days before. Um, so this is just what's happening now, uh, not what's happening for the last nine years. But the fact is, United States uh, weapons are uh, hammering civilian areas, not, not only United States, but just general Western supplied uh, weapons. Uh, the Western tax dollars are going to hit uh, uh, civilian areas. That's what Ukraine's doing with this. Of course, maybe they're also hitting uh, uh, military targets somewhere. I don't know, but I'm telling you what I see with my own eyes, and that's Western-supplied uh, taxpayers paying for weapons that are being used on civilian areas. Um, so how long is this going to last? I don't know, but one thing that be, can be said for sure, Russian law, regardless of what the United States, Europe, or Ukrainian law says, Russian law says that these four areas, Donetsk, Lugansk, Zaporozhye, and Kherson, are Russian territory, part of Russia. That is Russian law, regardless of opinions of other countries. So there's no way by Russian law that Russia can stop uh, this until Russia controls the entirety of those four areas. Um, so unfortunately, it seems that this, this uh, war is going to last another year or two. Who knows? I hope it ends tonight. Not tomorrow, but tonight. But it doesn't seem very likely. Um, so 
I'm just doing what I can here on the ground to show uh, uh, the facts, and I'm glad to be here with you guys uh, to show your audience. Patrick, here's a figure that I want you to remember. We did some calculations yesterday, and we calculated one year and approximately got some general numbers because you know that a lot of these governments will not really release how much money in funding they've done, how much money they've uh, funded in uh, other things. For example, uh, uh, how many arms they brought into the country. But let's use the cool, easy figure of $250 billion divided by how many hours there is in a year. You come up with a calculation of approximately the U.S. and the collective West. Many of these countries are burning 28 million U.S. dollars per hour on this war. That is a staggering amount of money, uh, absolutely mind-blowing uh, to the audience. And I really appreciate that, po that point that you made here tonight. We're, we, you and I have an extended interview, which will be on my Reportify Media channel. And I also tell uh, this audience that you're watching tonight to also watch uh, Patrick Lancaster's channel, of course, of course, and that amazing interview with Cyrus Jansen that just took place. If you want to get the background caught up and forward, that's how you got to go. You got to go with the Cyrus Jansen, Reportify Media, and Patrick Lancaster. And of course, we commend you for your hard work and your resilience to continue to reporting from this area. Patrick, what a great pleasure it's been to spend time with you today on the screen. Please be safe, my friend. And for everyone watching, go over to Patrick's channel right now. Donate, support this guy. Uh, he really appreciates it. And he's putting his neck and his life on the line to get you the truth. Patrick, thanks again for joining me. Greatly appreciate it. Well, that's the latest update from Patrick Lancaster in the Donbass area. Like I said, don't forget to subscribe to his channel, Cyrus Jansen's channel, who was a major part of this live stream today. Pretty exciting to share the screen with these gentlemen. I want to thank you, the audience, once again. Don't forget to subscribe to all these channels. They are all in the links below. If you're coming over from Cyrus Jansen's channel to my channel, Reportify Media, welcome. Say hello, and everyone will give you a warm welcome as well. Anyway, from me here in the fantastic, and I think undisputably one of the greatest cities in the world here in Chung, Ching, China. It's a good night for me. You guys take care. We'll talk soon. And hey, we won't just let you uh, go like that. Enjoy the views of China. <laughs>